Hi, today I'm going to be talking about a chapter out of C.S. Lewis's book, Celebration of Discipline, Revised Edition. And this chapter is called The Spiritual Discipline Stored to Liberation. Donald Coggan, I go through life as a transcendent on his way to eternity, made in the image of God, but with that image debased, needing to be taught how to meditate, to worship, to think. Superficiality is the curse of our age. The doctrine of instant satisfaction is a primary spiritual problem. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. The classical disciplines of the spiritual life call us to move beyond surface living into the depths. They invite us to explore the inner caverns of the spiritual realm. They urge us to be the answer to a hollow world. John Woolman counsels, It is good for thee to dwell deep, that thou mayest feel and understand the spirits of people. We must not be led to believe that the disciplines are only for spiritual giants and hence beyond our reach, or only for contemplatives who devote all their time to prayer and meditation. Far from it. God intends the disciplines of the spiritual life to be for ordinary human beings, people who have jobs, people who care for children, who wash dishes and mow lawns. In fact, the disciplines are best exercised in the midst of our relationships with our husband or wife, our brothers and sisters, our friends and neighbors. It says beginners are welcome. And as I read all these chapters of these um of this book Celebration of Discipline, and you know it talks about the first chapter is the celebration disciplines, door to liberation, that's introduction. Part one, the inward disciplines to meditation. Prayer, fasting, study, part two, the outward disciplines, simplicity, solitude, submission, service, part three, the corporate disciplines, confession, worship, guidance, and celebration. Then it says comments and celebration of celebration of discipline. So, as I read this book, it really opened my spiritual eyes to want to do research. I research everything. I research everything Anything I see on the news, anything I, I read on newspaper, I read in a magazine, I look up the words, the bigger words that I do not know, I look them up, then I look up, I uh, highlight anything in the Bible, even reading the Bible, I highlight things in the Bible, I highlight, highlight certain paragraphs or sentences in magazines and books where I get little sticky notes and I write down you know, what What does this mean? Like, in the beginning of the book, I wrote three persons of the Trinity. God the Father guides, God the Son guards, and God the Holy Spirit teaches. I did not know. I had no idea what three persons of the Trinity was, actually. I knew that there was, I knew, I've always been told in church, there was God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But no one, when I went to church and listened to the pastor, Assembly of God, no one really then, you know, they talked about stories in the Bible and they talked about people, but they didn't really um, explain how the Holy Spirit 
helped us and they only talked about the troubles that they went through and they talked about how they overcame them with God but they didn't go into any in depth and so I struggled throughout church I struggled throughout even Rock Haven Bible Camp Bible Camp I struggled throughout vacation Bible school because I wanted to know deeper I wanted to know why is everybody having why does people why do people worship why do people sing? Why do people read the Bible? You know, I wanted to know. I wanted to have a personal connection to the Bible. And I really didn't have a personal connection to the Bible until I started reading the Bible for myself and highlighting sentences in the Bible or words in the Bible. And then I looked them up later through a study Bible or I read articles of, you know, different people that broke down what this means and what this word means in, you know, how much faith you need to have and everything like that. And it really helped me understand um, better of everything than I, so I could have a better personal connection with God and my life experiences so I could understand how to overcome everything and how to, how God could help me through my life. Psalm 42, 7 reads, Deep calls to deep. Perhaps somewhere in the cemeterian chambers of your life you have heard the call to deeper fully living. You have become wary of frothy experiences and shallow teaching. Every now and then you have caught glimpses, hints of something more than you have known. Inwardly you long to launch out into the deep, and that was me. As the preachers would talk, they were always talking about shallow teaching stories in the Bible, but they would never go really go into deep how um, they would never go launch out to the deep. And that's what I wanted to do so I could better learn how to help myself and help my family and just be closer to God. Those who have heard the distant call deep within and who desire to explore the world of the spiritual disciplines are immediately faced with two difficulties. The first is philosophic, the materialistic base of our age has become so pervasive that it has given people grave doubts about their ability to reach beyond the physical world. Many first-rate scientists have passed beyond such doubts, knowing that we cannot be confined to a space-time box, but the average person is influenced by popular science which is a generation behind the times and is prejudiced against the non-material world. Meditation, for example, if loud at all, is not thought of as an encounter between a person and God, but as physiological manipulation. Usually people will tolerate a brief dabbling in the inward journey, but when but then it is time to get on with real business in the real world. We need the courage to move beyond the prejudice of our age and affirm with our best scientists that more than the material world exists. In intellectual honesty, we should be willing to study and explore the spiritual life, all the rigor and determination we would give to any field of research. The second difficulty is a practical one. We simply do not know how to go about exploring the inward life. This has not always been true. In the first century and earlier, it was not necessary to give instruction on how to do the disciplines of the spiritual life. The Bible called people to such disciplines as fasting, prayer, worship, and celebration, but gave almost no instruction 
about how to do them. The reason for this is it is easy to see. Those disciplines were so frequently practiced in such a part of the gener- general cu- cultural that the how-to was common knowledge. Fasting, for example, was so common that no one had to ask what to eat before a fast or how to break a fast or how to avoid dizziness while fasting. Everyone already knew. This is not true of our generation. Today, there is an admissible ignorance of the most simple and practical aspects of nearly all the classical spiritual disciplines. Hence, any book written on the subject must provide practical instruction on precisely how we do the disciplines. One word of caution, however, must be given at the outset. To know the mechanics does not mean that we are practicing the disciplines. The spiritual disciplines are an inward and spiritual reality, and the inner attitude of the heart is far more crucial than the mechanics for coming into the reality of the spiritual life. In our enthusiasm to practice the disciplines, we may fail to practice discipline. The life that is pleasing to God is not a series of religious duties. We have only one thing to do, namely to experience a life of relationship and intimacy with God, the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, James 1.17. Then it talks about the slavery of ingrained habits. We are accustomed to thinking of sin as individual acts of disobedience to God. This is true enough as far as it goes, but Scripture goes much further. Sin is such a complex matter that the Hebrew language has eight different words for it, and all eight are found in the Bible. In Romans, Apostle Paul frequently refers to sin as a condition that plagues the human race. Romans 3, 9-18 Sin as a condition works its way out through the bodily members, that is, ingrained habits of the body, Romans 7, 5. And there is no slavery that can compare to the slavery of ingrained habits of sin. Isaiah fifty seven twenty says, The wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot rest, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. The sea does not need to do anything special to produce mire and dirt. That is a result of its natural motions. This is also true of us when we are under the condition of sin. The natural motions of our lives produce mire and dirt. Sin is part of the internal structure of our lives. No special effort is needed to produce it. No wonder we feel trapped. Our ordinary method of dealing with ingrained sin is to launch a frontal attack. We rely on our willpower and determination. Whatever may be the issue for us, anger, fear, bitterness, gluttony, pride, lust, substance abuse, we determine never to do it again. We pray against it, fight against it, set our will against it, but the struggle is all in vain, and we find ourselves once again morally bankrupt or, worse yet, so proud of our external righteousness that whitened sculptures is a mild description of our condition. In his excellent little book entitled Freedom from Sinful Thoughts, Henny Arnold writes, We want to make it quite clear that we cannot free and purify our own heart by exerting our own will. So, um, see, I had problems with this. The preachers, preacher at Assembly of God, I went to Assembly of God, I went to Baptist Church, and they would, sometimes they would have preachers or they would have missionaries, and I really enjoyed listening to the missionaries and the ministers talk and speak at the podium because they talked about um, going to different countries, going across the world, and how they saved people. And some of them opened my eyes to 
demons, some of the preachers around my town would not, did not even talk about demons. Rarely they talked about them. More they, they more, mostly they talked about Bibles and the stories in the Bible. And they talked about how Sol- King Solomon or how David um, overcame all their struggles and why he did this. But they didn't really go into a deeper meaning of everything. And so when the ministers came to church, they would talk about saving people and they would talk about not just telling the people about the Bible or the stories in the Bible or how they would talk about how the people in the Bible have some of the same relations and the same um, problems that the people throughout the countries had. And they would talk about how they saved them. They would talk about that they... um you know, stuff like that, and they would go into deeper meanings, and so I'm not saying anything bad against the preachers that I listen to, but I'm saying that they really didn't open my eyes spiritually to the world around me. They would talk about stories in the Bible, but I wanted to know about, um, and throughout my childhood, when I was emotionally, verbally, and mentally abused, they wouldn't talk about stuff like that. They, and I think, as preachers in church, we are called to talk about everything. We are called to be ministers to people. We are called not only to spread the gospel to people and talk about and teach about. Um, see, that's what the problem was. The preachers that I was listening to, they were talking about the stories in the Bible. They weren't teaching people how they could overcome their own difficulties, how they could overcome um the faucets of life, how they could overcome everything bad, everything good, how they, what the, the words they were supposed to say, um, giving confessions and prayers of confessions and declarations they were supposed to say. I wasn't taught that, and I didn't really listen until I turned age 13, and I really did not hear, you know, I wanted to know how I could help how I could not be um, so shy, how I could, what I could do in my life. Even throughout school, I was not taught anything about life, how to, you know, change a tire. My dad taught me how to change a tire. I wanted to know how to do things in life. I did not want to know just the basics, you know, taking math class, taking literature class, taking English class, and it really did not help me. And, um... That's why people, preachers need to gather up people so they can have different Sunday schools for women, men, and children. And not only that, but so not it's not just about the fun activities, not just about doing a specific Bible study in the women's conference or in the Sunday school for men or women. It's about teaching and telling people, you know, bring in books from people. This is like this book that I got in 2017, Celebration of Discipline by C.S. Lewis. You know, talk about how you can help people's marriages. Talk about how you can help people in a relationship. Talk about how you can help children at their at with their education and at school and how they can overcome being shy and getting angry. That's what I wanted to know about. And this preacher was just talking about everything that um, it's important to talk about the relationships God had to the people 
in the stories in the Bible. It's taught, and it's important to talk about the stories in the Bible, but it's also really, it's really important to talk about how um, the people in the Bible are related to, and how they had the same same problems this generation had, or the last generation had, and just talk about that, go into a deeper meaning, and that's what I was looking for, and I didn't find it anywhere, The and that's when I started reading, I discovered Kenneth Copeland and Gloria Copeland one day, and they really helped people understand a deeper meaning to life, and how God helps us one-on-one, how he helps us through church, how he helps us in our relationships. And they gave confessions for me to say. They gave, I even looked at testimonials. And it wasn't just another preacher or another minister talking about just stories in the Bible. It, they were actually going into the deeper meaning of life. And they were helping me. And they were helping others out there. And that really grabbed my attention. And that's why I want... um went into forgiving my sins and then all that. Willpower will never succeed in dealing with the deeply ingrained habits of sin. Emmett Fox writes, as soon as you resist mentality, any undesirable or unwanted circumstance... You thereby endow it with more power, power which it will use against you, and you will have depleted your own resources to that exact extent. Henny Arnold concludes, As long as we think we can save ourselves by our own willpower, we will only make the evil in us stronger than ever. This same truth has been experienced by all the great writers of the devotional life from St. Augustine to St. Francis, from John Calvin to John Wesley, from Teresa of Avila to Juliana of Norwich. Will worship, many may produce an outward show of success for a time, but in the cracks and crevices of our lives, our deep inner condition will eventually be revealed. And see that that, uh, jumped out at me, that word. Inner condition will eventually be revealed. This preacher that I listened to, he was a good preacher. He talked about stories in the Bible but he really didn't talk about the inner condition of, you know, will eventually be revealed. He really didn't talk about inner condition of nothing. And I did not understand how I could, um, how I could use the the Bible scriptures on my life. If he just talked about stories and people in the Bible, he talked about that every he did talk about how um, not to do this and not to do that, but he really didn't give off any. I wasn't taught in that church to pray. You pray by, um, there's many types of prayer, but he did not teach us how to, that I can remember. He may have, but I was 13 and I stopped going when I was Sixteen, so I don't remember a whole lot, but I do know that I do not recall of him talking about praying Bible scriptures over your life. I had no idea that we could 
get a Bible scripture out of the Bible and pray it over our lives that we could go to any need we had in the any need we had in our lives that we could go to the Bible see what it says or I would look it up for an easier reference so I can then look it up in the Bible and then I would pray that Bible scripture over my life over my need in in Philippians 419 and my God shall supply fill to full um, give to full supply all my needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus and that's one of my favorite favorite verses because my God does that all the time and see I had no idea about that until I um, heard of Kenneth Gloria Copeland Jesus describes this condition when he speaks of the external righteousness of the Pharisees. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I tell you, on the day of judgment, men will render account for every careless word they utter. Matthew twelve thirty four through 36 You see, by dint of will, people can make a good showing for a time. But sooner or later, there will come that unguarded moment when the careless word will slip out to reveal the true condition of the heart. If we are full of compassion, it will be revealed. If we are full of bitterness, that also will be revealed. It is not that we plan to be this way. We have no intention of exploding with anger or of parading a sticky arrogance. But when we are with people, what we are comes out. Though we may try with all our might to hide those these things, we are betrayed by our eyes, our tongue, our chin, our hands, our whole body language. Willpower has no defense against the careless word the unguarded moment the will has the same deficiency as the law it can deal only with externals it is incapable of bringing about the necessary transformation of the inner spirit the needed change within us is god's work not ours the demand is for an inside job and only god can work from the inside we cannot attain or earn this righteousness of the kingdom of God. It is a grace that is given. In the book of Romans, Apostle Paul goes to great lengths to show that righteousness is a gift of God. This includes both objective righteousness and subjective righteousness. In this book, we are dealing with the issue of subjective righteousness or sanctification, if you prefer another theological term. But it is important to understand that both are gracious gifts from God. And, in fact, the Bible does not make the clear division between objective and subjective righteousness that theologians are accustomed to draw. Simply because the biblical writers would find it to talk of having one another, one without the other. We are tempted to believe there is nothing we can do. If all human strivings end in moral bankruptcy and having tried it, we know it is so. And if righteousness is a gracious gift from God, as the Bible clearly states, then it is then is it not logical to conclude that we must wait for God to come and transform us? Strangely enough, the answer is no. The analyst is correct. Human striving is insufficient and righteousness is a gift from God. But the conclusion is faulty. Happily, there is, there is something we can do. 
We do not need to be hung on the horns of the dilemma of either human works or idleness. God has given us the disciplines of the spiritual life as a means of receiving his grace. And grace means God's love. The disciplines allow us to place ourselves before God so that he can transform us. And see, in the Assembly of God church I went to, in the Baptist church, I did understand more of what he was talking about but he really didn't talk to he didn't really talk about how God molds us how God is the potter and we are the clay and he molds us into the perfect pot that we need to be the perfect person that we need to be he didn't give us details he did not give me details he did not give me um talk about details on how the disciplines allow us to place ourselves before God so that he can transform us he did not give us a deeper meaning of how um seeing it says A farmer is helpless to grow grain. All he can do is provide the right conditions for the growing of grain. He cultivates the ground, he plants the seed, he waters the plants, and then the natural forces of the earth take over and up comes the grain. This is the way it is with the spiritual disciplines. They are a way of sowing to the spirit. The disciplines are God's way of getting us to the ground. They put us where he can work within us and transform us. We were at church. I was at church listening to the preacher. That preacher was planting a seed inside me. And, but I had no idea how I could use that seed. I had no idea that I was even a reaper. I didn't know how to be a reaper. I didn't know how to sow. I did not know how to get the harvest when it came. God has ordained the disciplines of the spiritual life as a means by which we place ourselves where he can bless us. It is grace because it is free. It is discipline because there is something for us to do. And discipline means you have to do something. The grace of God is unearned and unearnable, but if we ever expect to grow in grace, we must pay the price of a consciously chosen course of action which involves both individual and group life. Spiritual growth is a purpose of the disciplines. As we travel on this path called life, the blessing of God will come upon us and reconstruct us into the image of Jesus Christ. We must always remember that the path does not produce a change. In only places us where the change can occur. This is a path of disciplined grace. However, once we live and walk on the path of disciplined grace for a season, we will discover internal changes.
Just as the natural motions of our lives once produced mire and dirt, now they produce righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans 14:17. Shakespeare observes that the quality of mercy is not strained, nor are any of the virtues once they have been taken have taken over the personality. The way of death turning the disciplines into laws. The spiritual disciplines are intended for our good. They are meant to bring the abundance of God into our lives. It is possible, however, to turn them into another set of self-killing laws. Law-bound disciplines breathe death. One factor, however, was always central to their righteousness, externalism. When the disciplines degenerate into law, they are used to manipulate and control people. We take explicit commands and use them to imprison others. Such a deterioration of the spiritual disciplines results in pride and fear. Pride takes over because we come to believe that we are the right kind of people. Fear takes over because we dread losing control. If we are to progress in the spiritual walk so that the disciplines are a blessing and not a curse, we must come to the place in our lives where we can lay down the everlasting burden of always needing to manage others. This drive, more than any single thing, will lead us to turn the spiritual disciplines into laws. Once we have made a law, we have an externalism, by which we judge who is measuring up and who is not. Without laws, the disciplines are primarily an external work, and it is impossible to control an internal work. When we genuinely believe the inner transformation is God's work and not ours, we can put to rest our passion to set others straight. As we enter the inner world of the spiritual disciplines, there will always be the danger of turning them into laws, but we are not left to our own human devices. Jesus Christ has promised to be our ever-present teacher and guide. His voice is not hard to hear. His direction is not hard to understand. If we are beginning to classify that what should always remain alive and growing, he will tell us. We can trust his teaching. If we are wondering, wandering off towards some wrong idea or unprofitable practice, he will guide us back. If we are willing to listen to the heavenly monitor, we will receive the instruction we need. Our world is hungry for genuinely changed people. And I, every day, God is genuinely, he's changing me into a changed people. Let us be among those who believe that the inner transformation of our lives is a goal worthy of our best effort. Then it goes on to the inward, the inward disciplines, the discipline of meditation. Biblical witness, the discipline of meditation, was certainly familiar to the authors of Scripture. The Bible uses two different Hebrew words to convey the idea of meditation, and together they are used some 58 times. These words have various meanings, listening to God's word, reflecting on God's works, rehearsing God's deeds, ruminating on God's law, and more. Repentance and obedience are essential features in any biblical understanding of meditation.
Christian meditation, very simply, is the ability to hear God's voice and obey his word. And while I went to the Assembly of God and also the Baptist Church, um, I really didn't pay attention much. But when I did, I really didn't hear them talk about meditating on God's word. They were just kept telling us, don't do this and don't do that and what to do and talking about the people in the Bible and um, talking about missionaries. But they did not say that you have to read the Bible for yourself. You have to, or they did say you have to read the Bible for yourself, but they didn't say nothing about meditating. I did not hear anything about meditating in the Word of God and how the Holy Spirit reaches out and talks to you through the Bible. I was not taught that until I read, um, discovered Kenneth and Gloria Copeland on, on the internet. The purpose of meditation. In meditation, we are growing into what Thomas A. Kempis calls a familiar friendship with Jesus. We are sinking down into the light and life of Christ and becoming comfortable in that posture. And we're not talking about speaking about some mushy, giddy, buddy, buddy, buddy relationship. All such Sentimentality only betrays how little we know, how distant we are from the Lord high and lifted up who is revealed to us in Scripture. What happens in meditation is that we create the emotional and spiritual space which allows Christ to construct an inner sanctuary in the heart. The wonderful verse, I stand at the door and knock, and there's a song called that, stand at the door and knock, 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 was originally penned for believers, not unbelievers, Revelation 3.20. Inward fellowship of this kind transforms the inner personality. We cannot burn the eternal flame of the inner sanctuary and remain the same, for the divine fire will consume everything that is impure. Understandable misconceptions. Whenever the Christian idea of meditation is taken seriously, there are those who assume it is synonymous with the concept of meditation centered in eastern religions in reality the two ideas stand worlds apart eastern meditation is an attempt to empty the mind christian medication meditation is an attempt to fill the mind the two ideas are quite different eastern forms of meditation stress the need to become detached from the world there is emphasis upon losing personhood and individuality and merging with the cosmic mind. There is a longing to be freed from the burdens and pains of this life and to be released into the impersonality of personal identity is lost and in fact personality is seen as the ultimate illusion. Detachment is the final goal of Eastern religion. Christian meditation goes far beyond the notion of detachment. There is need for detachment. A Sabbath of complementation as Peter of Sells a Benedictine monk of the 12th century put it. 
but there is a danger in thinking only in terms of detachment as Jesus indicates in his history in his story of the man who had been emptied of evil but not filled with good when the unclean spirit has gone out of the man he goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than himself and they enter and dwell there and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first Luke 11:24 through 26 Meditation is really very simple and there is not much need of elaborate techniques to teach us how to go about it. In fact, meditation is the one thing that can sufficiently redirect our life so that we can deal with human life successively. Thomas Merritt writes, meditation, meditation has no point in no reality unless it is firmly rooted in life. Historically, no group has stressed the need to enter into the listening silences more than the Quakers, and the result has been a vital social impact far in excess of their numbers. Often, meditation will yield insights that are deeply practical, almost mundane. Instruction will come on how to relate to your wife or husband or how to deal with this sensitive problem or that business situation. It is wonderful when a particular meditation leads to ecstasy but it is far more common to be given guidance in dealing with ordinary human problems how then do we come to believe in a world of the spirit is it by blind faith not at all the inner reality of the spiritual world is available to all who are willing to search for it often i have discovered that those who so freely debunk the spiritual world have never taken 10 minutes to investigate whether or not such a world really exists. Desiring the Living Voice of God Meditation boldly calls us to enter into the living presence of God for ourselves. How do we receive the desire to hear his voice? This desire to turn is a gift of grace. But the desire to meditate and the grace to begin meditating should be taken as an implicit promise of further graces. Seeking and receiving that gift of grace is the only thing that will keep us moving forward on the inward journey. Sanctifying the Imagination We can descend with the mind into the heart most easily through imagination. Some have objected to using the imagination out of concern that it is untrustworthy and could even be used by the evil one. There is good reason for concern, for the imagination, like all of our faculties, has participated in the fall. But just as we can believe that God can take our reason, fallen as it is, and sanctify it and use it for his good purposes, so we will. So we believe he can sanctify the imagination and use it for his good purposes. Of course, imagine. Imagination can be distorted by Satan, but then so can all our faculties. God created us with imagination, and as the Lord of his creation, he can and does redeem it and use it for the work of the kingdom of God.
To believe that God can sanctify and utilize the imagination is simply to take seriously the Christian idea of incarnation. God so accommodates, so enfleshes himself into our world that he uses images we know and understand to teach us about the unseen world of which we know so little and which we find so difficult to understand. Preparing to meditate. It is impossible to learn how to meditate from a book. We learn to meditate by meditating. We must come to see, therefore, how central our whole day is in preparing us for specific times of meditation. If we are constantly being swept off our feet with frantic activity, we will be unable to be attentive at the moment of inward silence. The Forms of Meditation Seek to live the experience remembering the encouragement of to all our senses to our tasks. Smell the sea, hear the lap of water along the shore, see the crowd, feel the sun on your head and the hunger in your stomach. So when we're meditating the Word of God, we need to picture as if Kenneth Copeland and Gloria Copeland talks about this. You need, we really need to read the Bible as if God is the one speaking to us. And I know it, the stories in the Bible is um, about people, the stuff that's already happened. And it's talking about this man or this woman. But we need to put every time you see the word I or you or every time you see a name in the Bible other than God you need to put your name in that place and you need to um I mean that's another way to read the Bible but Kenneth Copeland and Gloria Copeland talk about we need to put our names in the Bible as if so that way we can maybe your imagination I know not maybe your imagination will be opened and that way God will give you a understanding of everything that you once did not know. Therefore, my suggestion is that you take a single event or a parable or a few verses or even a single word and allow it to take root in you. Seek to live the experience remembering the encouragement. Yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Suppose we want to meditate on Jesus' staggering statement, My peace I give to you, John fourteen twenty seven. Our task is not so much to study the passage as it is to be initiated into the reality of which the passage speaks. We brood on the truth that he is now filling us with peace. The heart, the mind, and the spirit are awakened to his inflowing peace. We sense all motions of fear stilled and overcome by power and love and self-control. 2 Timothy 1, 7 so when you read the word when you read the word of God they say meditate on it. It means read that verse over and over. It doesn't matter how many times. If you are in fear, read about the peaceful verse in Psalms. Read about if you are needing wisdom, read about Proverbs. Read that book in the Bible. Keep reading the verse. If a verse sticks 
you know, jumps out at you and you keep reading it and it tugs at your heart or you have a feeling that you need to, you know, highlight that verse so that when you open the Bible, that verse pops out to you. And um, when you read the verses in the Bible and you need peace, you need, you need overcome, you need faith, you need love, 1 Corinthians Just, you know, read that first. Read it as if God is speaking to you. And that's when it says, My peace I give to you, John fourteen twenty seven. God has already given us peace. God has already given us love. God has already given us faith and overcome. He's already given us. He's not given us a spirit of fear. He's given us a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. And just meditate on that until it sinks down in your body until it sinks in your mind and you feel peace you feel faith you feel that you have a spirit of peace and a spirit of love we are no longer worried about how we can make ourselves more at peace for we are attending to the impartation of peace within our hearts And then if you're in anger, say, Lord, I give to you my anger toward whosoever you have anger towards. Say that name. I release my fear of my dentist appointment this morning. I surrender my anxiety over not having enough money to pay the bills this month. I release my frustration over trying to find a babysitter for tonight. Whatever it is that weighs on your mind or is a concern to you, just say, palms down, release it. You may even feel a certain sense of release in your hands. After several moments of surrender, turn your palms up as a symbol of your desire to receive from the Lord. Perhaps you will pray silently, Lord, I would like to receive your divine love for John, your peace about the dentist appointment, your patience, your joy, whatever you need, you say, palms up. Having centered down, spend the remaining moments in complete silence. Do not ask for anything. Allow the Lord's communion with you to love you. So once you... Give your request made known unto God. Then be quiet and be silent and hear his voice. Even if you do not hear his voice, keep doing that. Keep making requests made known to God. Keep saying the Bible scripture. John fourteen twenty seven. my peace God has given unto you. Keep saying that and God will eventually speak to you. You have to go somewhere and be somewhere quiet. Go somewhere quiet and do this so God, you can hear from God. If impressions or directions come, fine. If not, fine. And I do that all the time. So give your attention to the created order. Look at the trees. Really look at them. Take a flower and allow its beauty and symmetry to sink deep into your mind and heart. Listen to the birds. They are the messengers of God. Watch the little creatures that creep upon the earth. These are humble acts, to be sure. But sometimes God reaches us profoundly in these simple ways if we will quiet ourselves to listen. Even in this busy world, you know, we're rushing. It doesn't matter if you have your busy schedule and you have work and you have your, have an office job or you have to take calls all the time. Any time during your lunchtime, any time in the morning before you... You know, while you're getting ready, while you're, this is a great time for a lot of people to do this. 
and you know it's quiet in their car turn the radio off don't listen to music just tell God that God I give you my anger toward John God I give you my anger toward this person he made me so mad but I want your peace I want your protection you know if you're afraid about um driving in the snow or in the ice God say I want your protection God over this car and just you know there's bible scriptures to look up to say look up how to um bible scriptures on protect protection of your life of your car and it'll give you bible scriptures for that We would do well to hold the events of our time before God and ask for prophetic insight to and discern where these things lead. Further, we should ask for guidance for anything we personally should be doing to be salt and light in our decaying and dark world. You must not be discouraged if in the beginning your meditations have little meaning to you. There is a progression in the spiritual life and it is wise to have some experience with lesser peaks before trying to tackle the Mount Everest of the soul. So be patient with yourself. Besides, you are learning a discipline for which you have received no training, nor does our culture encourage you to develop these skills. You will be going against the tide, but take heart. Your task is of immense worth. There are many other aspects of the discipline of meditation that could be profitably considered. However, meditation is not a single act, nor can it be completed the way one completes the building of a chair. It is a way of life. You will be constantly learning and growing as you plumb the inner depths. Two topics that closely impinge upon meditation will be discussed under the discipline of solitude, the creative use of silence and the concept developed by St. John of the Cross that he graphically calls the dark night of the soul. And I know as I'm talking about the discipline of meditation and the discipline of liberation. I know there's people that's going to um, listen to this and they're going to take everything into consideration and they're especially going to learn from what I just said and by this book, by the Celebration Discipline, you know, by Richard Foster, read this book and even any book on, just look up this Discipline of Meditation, look it up for yourself. Look up medi- meta meditation on Kenneth and Gloria Copeland's website on kcm.org. Go to Joyce Meyer and on YouTube and just look up and read stuff and she will help you.